Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Heather. And I want to remind you about our very special tours to the UK. In 2017, we'll be doing tours focusing on the Evensong experience. The Evensong service comes from Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer from the mid-16th century. It's been dubbed the atheist's favorite service because it requires so little and it gives so much. It's simply divine choral music sung in some of the most historic chapels, abbeys, and cathedrals in England. We'll be spending 10 days visiting places like Cambridge, Oxford, Bath, the Cotswolds, Winchester, and Windsor with walking tours, free time to explore, and then gathering back each afternoon for the Evensong service if you choose to attend. It will be 10 days of beautiful countryside, historic cities and villages, and so, so much music. I invite you to go to englandcast.com tours for full itinerary and pricing information. Again, englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com tours. Thanks so much, and now to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. This is your host, Heather Tesco. But actually, I'm not your host today, because today, episode number 56, is a guest episode on Bessie Blount by James Bolton. James is the author and host of the Queens of England podcast, which is undoubtedly my new favorite podcast. So please check it out. Before I introduce James, though, let me remind you to pop on over to the Renaissance English History Podcast website at www.englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D, englandcast.com for full archives of the show. And you can also sign up for my mailing list there. Mailing list subscribers receive an extra mini cast every month, as well as book giveaways, news and other fun things. So do go on and check that out. So now on to James. Let me introduce his podcast. Too often, when we think about the history of a country, we think of the kings and lords, castles and battles. Even when we consider queens, we think of rulers like Elizabeth I and Victoria. But what about the queens who sat beside their husbands, the queen's consort, the generations of women who held no formal power, but still wove an important strand in the tapestry of England? The Queens of England podcast is an alternative history of England told through the lives of the women behind the throne. And you can check it out at queensofenglandpodcast.com. I also have a link up on the Englandcast site. So now I will turn it over to James. And thank you, James. Hello, I'm James Bolton, writer, producer and host of the Queens of England podcast. My show examines the lives of the many women throughout English history that have married kings and become Queen's consort. Throughout, I've tried to show that it's not only the ruling queens like Elizabeth or Victoria that deserve to be remembered, but the ones who are not queens in their own right as well. You can find my show in all the usual places, as well as at my website, queensofenglandpodcast.com. 
For the past year and a bit, I've been ploughing through the Middle Ages, but I'm about to emerge from the Wars of the Roses period and enter into the terrifying world of the Tudors, otherwise known as Heather's World. Instead of fending me off, Heather has generously allowed me to come on her podcast while she moves back to the land of the free and the home of the brave. Now, for those of you who listen to David Crowther's History of England podcast may know me as the person who did a guest episode on Jane Shaw. Royal mistresses are fascinating to me, as they are such graphic examples of the notion that medieval marriages were far more like business partnerships than chivalric love matches. They expose the limitations of female power, and often the reactions to them on the part of the nobility and clergy expose the deeply patriarchal nature of society. Therefore, when Heather asked me to contribute to the show, my first thought was to cover one of Henry VIII's mistresses. But which one? To say Henry got around is to understate the point dramatically, but in terms of long-term mistresses, there are only a few to choose from. But in the end, I chose Bessie Blount. Before I start talking about Bessie, though, I think it's worth talking a little bit about Henry himself. There are few people in history who have been more studied, more psychoanalyzed, and more romanticized than England's second Tudor king. I got what I think amounts to a fairly typical English education when I was at school, and that meant that I studied the reign of Henry, I believe, at least five times from when I was seven to eighteen. He looms large in British history, like very few others, and while it is for many reasons, it is his women that probably have elevated him to historical rock star status. Every British school child is taught the rhyme to remember the fates of his wives. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. And if you stopped a person in the street and asked them to name one fact about the reign of Henry VIII, I would bet you ten quid that the answer would be that he had six wives. To put that number in perspective, the next highest number of spouses for a British monarch is half that at three for Mary I of Scotland. The matter of his mistresses, though, is surprisingly a matter of some debate. In the French court, there was an official position known as maîtresse en titre, which was for the official mistress of the king. This woman would be given her own apartments in the palace and was recognised and accepted even by the queens of France. England had no such official equivalent, but the idea of kings taking mistresses was very common. The most famous medieval mistresses were Jane Shaw and Alice Perez, but there were undoubtedly more that have not made it into the historical record. Now, some revisionist historians have stated that Henry VIII only had a very small number of mistresses in his life, and some have even suggested that he had only two, Bessie Blount and Mary Boleyn, and that shows that Henry was not quite the sex maniac that some have previously suggested. Philippa Jones, in her book The Other Tudors, takes the position that really Henry was just a classic romantic, and Kelly Hart, in The Mistresses of Henry VIII, argues that Henry was a one-woman man, though I think she means two-woman man, as he was married while having these affairs. To say the least, this position has quite a few problems. The first is that people just did not write about royal mistresses. It appears to have been some sort of a taboo in contemporary historical writing. Indeed, the only reasons that we know about Bessie and Mary are for two very specific reasons. For Mary, it's because Henry ended up marrying her sister. For Bessie, well, I'll get to that later. But the point is that if it were not for these facts, then we may not have known for sure about any dalliances that Henry got up to. Therefore, Henry could only have had these two affairs, and were just lucky, lucky, lucky that they both had such unusual features as to survive to us. Or, as seems more likely to me, he had many affairs. It's just that we don't know about them. This squares also with what we know about Henry's courtship of Anne Boleyn. We know that he offered her the chance to become his mistress, but that she refused him. 
One can easily infer then that it was quite normal for women to accept to be mistresses of the king. What was unusual in Anne's case was saying no. In her book, The Six Wives and Many Mistresses of Henry VIII, Amy Lysons says that, quote, There is no question that Henry was very good at covering tracks, so good in fact that he continues to throw us off the scent five centuries later. What happened late at night when the king was a guest in the properties of friends, or on royal progress, or abroad, would not necessarily have become common knowledge. The modern argument that something would have been whispered at the time if Henry had slept with more women runs counter to the many occasions of Tudor scandal known to scholars today for which no contemporary rumour survived. It underestimates the nature of the surviving source material. It also underestimates the king and the world he inhabited. What has been suggested is that Henry was a one-mistress man, that he only ever kept one at a time before discarding them and beginning the next one. These were usually quite temporary and offered very little in the way of advantage to the lady in question. This is a very pervasive argument, but again, there is so little evidence about for Henry's mistresses that I find it hard to work out how a lot of writers have come to this conclusion. Why is it not possible that while Henry had a number of mistresses whom he kept around for a long time, they did not also have short-term flings as well? This concerted attempt to reverse the idea of the disgusting, lecherous Henry of the old historical model seems to me to have gone far too far when it suggests that he was just a gooey romantic of sorts. A great piece of evidence from this actually comes from Henry's own pen, when he makes an offer to Anne Boleyn to make her his only mistress. Quote, Casting off all others besides you out of my thoughts and affections, and serve you only. Why make this very clear promise if he was chaste to his mistresses? He must have had a reputation as a serial womanizer, and not monogamous even to those women whom he had affairs with. Okay, so I think I've made my point. Henry almost certainly had a lot of flings around the Tudor court. But we only know about two for sure. So let's move away from the abstract and look in a bit more detail at the early years of Henry's reign and how he came to meet and become intimately acquainted with the daughter of a Shropshire knight. The year is 1514, and Henry had been King of England for five years. For almost all of that time, he had been married to Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of the then King and Queen of Spain, and his brother's widow. In that period, she had been pregnant three times and was currently bearing her fourth. So far, all of her pregnancies had been unsuccessful in producing a live child, and indeed her current attempt was also doomed to end in stillbirth. Pregnancy in this period was a highly ritualised occasion, and involved abstention from any sex while the woman was bearing a child. This meant that Henry had multiple opportunities to sleep around the court, and indeed he had flings with a number of women, including Lady Anne Hastings, the daughter of one of Elizabeth Woodville's sisters, Etienne de la Baume, a maid in the household of the powerful Margaret of Savoy, and Jane Popancourt, a French-born lady of the English court who had been teaching Henry's sisters French. Let's not forget that Henry was by now a 23-year-old king who, while not having absolute power, had something approaching it. The French ambassador described Henry in 1509 as being a, quote, youngling, he cares for nothing but girls and hunting. It is hardly surprising that he slept around a lot, but all of these flings were fairly temporary. While he had been unsuccessful so far in fathering a child with his wife Catherine, it was not unusual for it to take some time. Margaret of Anjou, for example, was a queen for nearly nine years before giving birth to her first child. His sleeping around had far more to do with him being a full, red-blooded, sexually active man bailing out of his teens than any dissatisfaction with his wife. And it's not altogether unclear that Catherine would have minded much either. It was a normal and expected fact of life for a royal wife to be one of many women with whom the king shared a bed. 
It did not necessarily represent a direct challenge to her, nor indicate that the king did not favour her. And it was not just the fact that he was a king that made him so irresistible to women. In his early days, there are lots of glowing descriptions of England's heartthrob king. A Venetian visitor to the court described him thusly, quote, His majesty is the handsomest potentate I ever set eyes on. Above the usual height, with an extremely fine calf to his leg, his complexion very fair and bright, with auburn hair combed straight and short in the French fashion, and a round face so very beautiful that it would become a pretty woman. He was also a fine musician and an accomplished composer of poetry, and indeed music, which I will come back to in a little bit. What I am saying is that Henry was a bit of a babe, and even though he was married, this would not have stopped all the ladies at court from swooning over him. Okay, so that's the stage set. Let's now pivot back a few years and talk about the subject of this episode, Elizabeth, or as I will call her, Bessie Blount. Now, a continual issue that we will come across for Bessie is that there is so, so much that we don't know. Much of what we do know is gleaned from the edges of her life, from documents about her family or brief mentions of her in other sources. There is no life of Bessie Blount, no early modern version of a biography. No one spent much time waxing lyrical about her, and since she was by comparison far less a controversial mistress than some of her predecessors, such as Jane Shaw and Alice Perez, there are no attacks on her in the Chronicles. Basically, there will be lots of me saying probably, or maybe, or around in this episode. So apologies for all of that in advance. Blame the Tudors. Bessie was born in about... See, I've already started... 1498, seven years after her future lover Henry. Her parents, John Blount and Catherine Perschel, were members of the gentry whose families had lived in Kinlet and Shropshire since the Norman Conquest. They had been prominent Yorkists, but had secured their position after Bosworth thanks to the influence of Henry VII's Queen Elizabeth of York, as a Blount had once been her father's guardian. They'd been married when about the age of ten, and their marriage was the union of two very prominent Shropshire gentry families. They grew up together as boy and wife, and later then as man and wife, and it seems that they would not have consummated their marriage until the very end of the 1490s, about the time that we believe Bessie was born. Bessie was the eldest child of John and Catherine, and the first of eleven children. Within a few days she was christened, as one would expect, and was named after her great-grandmother, Dame Elizabeth Blount, and it is possible that she gained the nickname Bessie now, so as to be differentiated from the ageing formidable matriarch of the family. She would have grown up mostly around her sisters, and her mother would have supervised her upbringing and education. Catherine was an impressive woman, a dominating figure, and she was keen to pass on the fruits of the education given to her by her parents onto her children. An example of the doctrine set out by Tudor families for the upbringing of their daughters comes in The Book of the Knights of the Tower, a kind of medieval self-help book that was printed by Caxton in 1483. It warns of the dangers of straying from chastity, of giving in to lustful desires. It required women to regularly fast and demanded that women be demure and quiet. Most of all, women were supposed to be raised to become good, pious and dutiful wives. I'm going to quote a little bit. Quote, all gentlewomen of all conditions ought to be of retiring manners, self-respectful, unassuming, small talkers. They should rejoin with diffidence, nor should they be too ready to understand, or yet anxious, or allow their eyes to be seen about. For, to end the matter, no good comes of it. Many have lost their chances through too much readiness, and of whom one would have expected very other things. Clearly, Bessie was not listening too hard when she was taught that last bit. 
A female education of the time would be heavy on singing, needleworking, dancing, and above all, praying. We have no reason to doubt that her family were Catholics, untainted by the sinews of Reformation coming from the continent, and indeed throughout her life there is nothing to suggest that Betty deviated from the faith of the king, that is to say, Catholic, just without the Pope from the 1530s. She would have spent most of her life in and around the manor, but her family connections meant that she may well have visited court as an infant. Her grandmother was Isabel Stanley, a distant relation of the famous Lord Stanley, who had played such a vital part at Bosworth, and her husband, Thomas Blount, had connections in the early Tudor court. Her parents were present at the marriage of Prince Arthur, eldest son of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, to Catherine of Aragon in 1501. And when the royal couple moved to nearby Ludlow in Shropshire, they became a fixture in their life. Bessie's great-grandfather, Sir Richard Croft, became one of the young prince's key advisers, and her grandfather, Thomas Blount, was also prominent in his household. Clearly, this was all about ingratiating oneself with the future king, but sadly, all that buttering up did no good, as Arthur died only a few months after arriving at Ludlow. The Blount family were prominent in the prince's funeral, and it seems likely that Bessie would have witnessed the very solemn occasion as a very young girl. Bessie's mother was likely one of Catherine of Aragon's attendants, and so would have played a role in consoling the foreign princess. But when she returned to London, Catherine Pershall returned to her family. This all happened in 1502, and we don't know anything with certainty about Bessie's life until she pops up at court ten years later. Her parents were present at the funeral of Henry VII in 1509, and the new king liked her father so much that he appointed him to be one of his spears, a kind of ceremonial bodyguard required to be around the king pretty much constantly. Given that he would continue to have children with his wife, it is likely that she would have been brought along, and Bessie would have come along as well, as at the age of 12, she was approaching the age where she could be introduced to society. It seems that they were keen to win her an appointment as a maid of honour to the Queen, who was of course at this time Catherine of Aragon. Now to become a maid of honour, there were a few requirements. You had to be well-born and well-connected, but also you had to be pretty. No one wants ugly people around the Queen. It just doesn't make for a good visual. And by that, I mean that Henry VIII liked to be surrounded by attractive women. For, you know, reasons. No portrait of Bessie survives, but she was renowned as a beauty, which means that she probably conformed to the English standard of beauty at the time, which had not really changed for some centuries. While the standard varied in different kingdoms throughout Europe, English ladies were supposed to be pale, fair-haired, blue-eyed, and slim. The only two likenesses of her that survive are from an image by her parents' tomb and her own funeral brass. From that, she is presented as being demure, modest, and with a very friendly face, especially when contrasted with her rather fierce-looking sister. She was a fashionable lady, wearing the rather daring French hood rather than the more conservative English one. Aside from that, we know very little, but it is enough to say that she was pretty enough to merit an appointment to the Queen's household. To do so, she would have needed a patron, and although her father's position as one of the King's spears was prestigious, she needed more than that, as there were plenty of higher-born, fancier girls who also wanted the job. Her way in was through a distant relative, the delightfully named Lord Mountjoy, who was probably the man who had introduced her father to Henry VIII and got him his position in the spears. By 1512, Bessie was the future of her family, her brothers had died young, and so she would be the heiress of her family's estates, though it was likely it would be split up at least a bit between her sisters as well. This meant that she was a decent prospect in the domestic marriage market, 
and this would have encouraged her relatives to get in her corner and promote her up the patronage food chain. Mountjoy was well acquainted with the Queen, his wife was Spanish herself, and had attended her ever since she had arrived in England, and he was her chamberlain as well as master of the royal mint. She also had in her corner another distant relation, Sir Edward Darrell, who, as the Queen's vice-chamberlain, which, until I did the research for this, I had no idea was a thing. He was also one of the King's knights of the body, and a spear like Bessie's father. Getting Bessie into the royal court was good for her, good for the family, but also good for Mountjoy and Darrell, personally, as the more blounts they could squeeze into the Queen's household, the more influence they would have over a woman who, at the time, was a fairly significant presence in the Tudor court. Bessie achieved her aim and became a lady-in-waiting to Queen Catherine in 1513 at the age of 14. This meant that she was of marriage age and in the shop window, as it were. Now, of course, this new position meant that she would have to get a whole new wardrobe, as the king and queen were known to have very exacting standards of dress. Women were supposed to wear tight-fitting garments on their upper body and arms, with the early modern equivalent of a push-up bra and spanks. Over that, a sleeve gown and kerfa would be worn, and a full skirt, probably with a train. Her hair would be covered with a hood to complete this ensemble, which would have cost a pretty penny. Catherine had a lot of ladies-in-waiting, and they were divided into four grades. They were, in descending order of importance, the great ladies, the ladies of the privy chamber, maids of honour, and chamberers. Now Bessie, as a woman from the gentry and unmarried, would be classified in the third tier as a maid of honour, and this meant that she was in a totally different league from ladies like the Countess of Salisbury or Countess of Oxford, who occupied the first ranks. These ladies had their own apartments in the palace, with their own households, but they also had estates to run at home, and so were rarely with the Queen on a day-to-day basis. They would turn up for the big ticket events, but not much else. The second-tier ladies would be with the Queen far more, and they served as her companions. Bessie was the stage below that, and her tasks were far more menial. She would have done a lot of fetching and carrying, menial stuff really, but these positions were very much sought after, as they allowed for personal contact with the Queen. When it comes to royal jobs, it's all about intimate contact. It doesn't really matter what the job was, it was its literal proximity to the person of the king and queen that counted. Bessie would have been one of the lowest-born ladies in her rank. She only managed to get in because of lobbying from her powerful relatives. So now Bessie was at court, and everything was appearing to be swell in her family's plan to secure for her a good husband. But then, disaster struck, at least for her. Her mother gave birth to a healthy son, and then went on to give birth to two more in succession. This meant that her main selling point as a wife, that she was an heiress, was swept away, as her brothers would now inherit everything. I imagine that would make for some pretty awkward family meals. That said, Bessie was still very attractive, educated, and accomplished lady of court, and good looks and charm had been proven in the past to attract high-status single men. Elizabeth Woodville is a great example of this. She managed to bag a king for her husband despite being of low rank and even on the wrong side of the Wars of the Roses. Henry's court at this time was a magnificent place. One foreign visitor to the court said about it, quote, The wealth and civilization of the world are here, and those who call the English barbarians appear to me to render themselves such. I here perceive very elegant manners, extreme decorum, and great politeness. And amongst other things, there is this invincible king, whose acquirements and, and qualities are so many and so excellent that I consider him to excel all who ever wore a crown. The music that I'm currently playing over this part of the episode is actually written by the king. It's a song called Pastime with Good Company, 
and is a rather jolly song about the joys of leisure and spending time with friends. The joys of youth and all that. The Tudor court was in fact full of music, and Bessie would have fitted in splendidly here, as there is ample evidence that she was an accomplished musician as well. With much of the business of government left to his ministers, Henry undertook a life of leisure, centred around hunting, jousting, feasting and dancing, and as a lady of the court, Bessie would have attended the sporting events and participated in the feasts and dances, most particularly the masks, of which Henry was a big fan. This was a court full of courtly love, one where men and women would engage in highly flirtatious encounters, making promises, exchanging gifts, and whispering sweet nothings to each other without necessarily a sexual relationship going on. The man was always the person to initiate these sorts of encounters, and would begin by paying compliments and giving gifts. At this point, the woman is supposed to play hard to get, but not reject or refuse. The man would persist, and the woman would begin to acquiesce. The talk would become more flirtatious, and eventually either things would peter out, or something more sexual would occur, but it was far more common to be the former rather than the latter. It was a game of subtlety and discretion. You deftly danced around issues while dancing around each other. And of course, all of this was intensified when it was the king with whom you were dallying. You could not give him the cold shoulder, you had to return his messages and play along with his game. It is likely that Bessie would have engaged in all of this before catching the eye of the king. It was inescapable. She would also have spent a lot of time caring for the queen during her many pregnancies, and would have seen the strain that constant failed childbearing had on the health, both physical and emotional, of Catherine. She would also have seen firsthand the king's philandering, which mostly seemed to have taken place while the queen was pregnant, as sexual intercourse with a pregnant lady was seen as being bad for the health of the child. And eventually, it was Bessie's turn to become the object of the king's affections. Now, the hugely frustrating thing about Bessie's affair with the king is that there is almost nothing in the sources about it. We don't know when it started, we don't know for sure how long it lasted, and we don't know the nature of it. The first time that we know that the king was aware of Bessie is in a letter written by Charles Brandon in 1514, where he asked the king to let her know that he wanted her to write to him. In 1515, we know that she danced with the king at New Year, though whether this was the first time that this happened is entirely unknown. Later that year, he made a significant financial gift to her father, possibly signifying the favour with which he held Bessie, as other members of the Spears were getting the cold shoulder at this point. At this point, though, he already had a mistress, Elizabeth Carew, and so proponents of the One Mistress Henry theory suggest that it was not until 1517 or so, when the gifts given to Elizabeth Carew stopped, marking the end of their relationship, but the problem is that at no point in Henry's affair with Blount is she ever given significant gifts. Like I said, this is for the moment a very under-the-radar affair. Whenever it started, it doesn't really matter. The beautiful Bessie Blount became the king's mistress, the apple of his eye. So, how did this mistressing work? Well, what one needed was a go-between, someone who could add a measure of subtlety. The chief candidate for this is Sir William Compton, who had previous in this regard. The king's chambers in his palaces were, of course, separate from that of his wife. They slept in separate beds and only shared them for the purpose of having sex. This made having an affair somewhat easier. Henry was known as a man who liked his privacy, and so he had secret staircases in his chambers, allowing Bessie to enter his rooms without people noticing, and then leave when all was done. But, like I said, we know almost nothing about the substance of the affair, and it is likely that we never would have heard anything about it at all, if it were not for a momentous event that took place in the latter part of 1518. 
Bessie discovered that she was pregnant with the king's child. This meant that the child would have been conceived in the autumn of that year, which was at a time when the queen, Bessie's mistress, let's not forget, was pregnant herself. This timeline would suggest that conception would have occurred at Greenwich Palace, a fact that I present in lieu of any other juicy details about the affair that history has failed to include for us. Now, of course, this was not the done thing. Unmarried women were not supposed to have been having sex with anyone, let alone carrying a bastard child. Therefore, Bessie had to leave the court, no doubt giving the Queen some excuse for why she had to leave her service for about nine months. To add insult to injury, the child that Catherine was carrying turned out to be a stillborn daughter. She would not carry another child again. It is likely that Bessie went to St Lawrence Priory in Essex while she carried her child to term, a stay arranged by Cardinal Wolsey, the power behind Henry's throne. It was a quiet place, away from prying eyes and gossipy mouths, though I'm sure Bessie's absence from court cannot have gone unnoticed. This thing was just not that unusual. That said, it was not far from the royal residence at New Hall, and Henry frequently called on the future mother of his child. According to the chronicler Edward Hall, Henry's servants were told, quote, not to inquire where the king goeth, be it early or late. In the spring of 1519, Bessie gave birth to, wait for it, a boy! Yay! And more than that, a healthy one. The child was named after his father on his request slash demand, and had amongst his godparents Thomas Wolsey. He was given the surname Fitzroy, a common one given to bastard sons of kings. At first, the birth of Henry was a fairly low-key affair. The king would have been overjoyed about the birth of a healthy son, proof at last in his eyes that it was not his fault that his wife could not bear a healthy son, but equally, he knew the value of patience. The early years of infancy were fraught with danger in this period, and there was no guarantee that the child would survive. This is also not to forget that the boy was illegitimate, so not necessarily something to go shouting from the rooftops about. Fitzroy would have been taken by a nursing team who would take care of him, while Bessie remained at Blackmore to recuperate, still away from the eyes of the court. The orthodox view has been that after the birth of the son, the affair ended, but there is a fascinating question, though, about a second child born to Bessie quite soon after Fitzroy's birth. A 1542 document talks of a daughter named Elizabeth, who was 22 at the time, meaning that she would have been born in around the late spring of 1520. This would fit in with the birth of Fitzroy, just, and suggest that Henry may have continued the affair with Bessie longer than previously thought. Now, it is possible that she may have been the product of a different affair that Bessie had, or even her upcoming marriage may have taken place earlier than previously thought, but that seems unlikely, as all the gifts and favours granted them started in 1522. There is also the evidence that Henry took quite a close interest in Elizabeth later in life, helping her out when she had legal trouble, granting her land and property, and generally paying her far more attention than one would expect a king to give to the daughter of his former mistress. It seems to me very likely, then, that Henry did father a second illegitimate child with Bessie, probably on one of his visits to Blackmore, which would later gain a reputation as being a place of sinful extramarital sex, a dumping ground for the king's bastards and mistresses. This would go against many historians who cling to the idea that Henry only had one bastard child in Henry Fitzroy, but there is plenty of evidence to suggest that he had actually quite a lot. There is considerable doubt, for example, that Mary Boleyn's two children were fathered by her husband, and were instead the king's bastards. The definite end date, though, for Henry and Bessie's affair is 1522, when two things happened. First, Henry began his infamous affair with Mary Boleyn, and second, 
Henry ordered Wolsey to find Bessie a husband. The man that was chosen was Gilbert Tailboys. Tailboys, yet another hilarious surname, was around the same age as Bessie and of a higher social class. His lands were based in Lincolnshire and there were plenty of them. These were added to in an Act of Parliament in 1523, which announced their marriage as well as granting Gilbert, quote, not only great sums of money, but also many benefits to their right much comfort. It then says, quote, The said Elizabeth, meaning Bessie, of course, may have, hold, and enjoy for the terms of her life natural, without impeachment of any waste, the lordship's manners, lands, tenements, and hereditaments thereafter ensuring, which be of the inheritance of the said George Tailboys or Gilbert. It then goes on and on a bit in legalese, quote, in the city of Lincoln and the manors of Skeldingthorpe and Bamborough, Frexnay, Soxby and Foldingworth in the county of Lincoln. These bequeathments were only for her life and would not pass to anyone else, but it was a fairly significant gift and would provide a good income for Bessie for the rest of her life. Moreover, Henry continued to give land to the couple throughout the 1520s, and Gilbert was given a variety of titles, including the position of High Sheriff of Lincolnshire in 1526. This marriage, then, was highly beneficial to everyone. It kept Bessie happy, which was important for Henry VIII, who didn't want disgruntled mistresses mouthing off. For Bessie, it was a respectable marriage to a respectable man with a noble history and lineage. And for Gilbert, it was basically the jackpot that kept on giving. Sometimes, it pays to marry the king's sloppy seconds, if you'll excuse the vulgar expression. Although they were no longer having a sexual relationship, things remained warm between Bessie and Henry. They are known to have continued to exchange gifts at New Year's. Henry's in particular was a far more expensive one than would be expected to be given to a woman of Bessie's position. But of course, there is an elephant in the room that I have not been talking about for a while, and that is the child they brought into the world. And although this is a show about Bessie and not Fitzroy, I will talk about him briefly. There was not much to tell for the first six years of his life. Childhood was a dangerous time, but there is evidence that the king provided for him richly. He was raised in the household of Thomas Wolsey, but the biggest moment of his young life took place in 1525. The boy had already lived far longer than any of the king's other sons, and the king had given up on trying to have further progeny with Catherine of Aragon. At this point, it was not ridiculous that Henry could legitimise the boy and make him his heir. Let's not forget that the entire Tudor claim to the throne was based off the legitimised bastard children of John of Gaunt. Whether this was at the fore of Henry's mind or not is not clear, but in 1525 he elevated his son Henry to the peerage, making him Duke of Richmond, and he would later be given a huge number of titles, including Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Warder of the Sank Ports, Earl of Nottingham, and Duke of Somerset. This was a massive flood of titles to be given to anyone, let alone a bastard child. It had the effect of legitimising him, and he was the only one of Henry's bastards to be legitimised. Now, these titles would normally be reserved for the king's heir, and it is possible that this was all about punishing his wife for the actions of her nephew, Emperor Charles V, who had backed out of marrying his daughter Mary. Fitzroy was now the highest-ranking person that she'd court, except in the king and queen, and it seems clear to me that he was preparing for perhaps nominating him as successor over his daughter Mary. His rich land holdings provided for a huge household, and everything was going swimmingly. A high-status marriage was in mind for him, but while there was still the chance that Henry might have another son, the crowned heads of Europe were loath to take a punt on Fitzroy. He was moved to apartments close to the king and accompanied him on foreign trips, and eventually married Mary Howard, which, while not being a foreign marriage, was still a pretty good match. Henry, though, never did officially recognise Fitzroy as his heir, 
especially as after his divorce, he had high hopes of siring children with Anne Boleyn. But it is very likely that he was the king's banker, his backup option. Unfortunately, in 1536, he succumbed to an infection and died. Throughout his short life, it seems that Bessie had little contact with her son. From the moment that she had given him up to Wolsey and later the king, Fitzroy became very much a warden of the state and no longer her mother's son. That said, Bessie is known to have had contacts within his household. There are, though, no records of them spending time together, but it is possible that they retained a correspondence, as there are letters surviving between her and his tutor which suggested. Bessie had two further children with Gilbert, George and Robert, both of whom were born near the beginning of their marriage, and it seems that they shared a happy time as man and wife. Gilbert died in 1513, leaving Bessie as a wealthy widow, and it was not long before she remarried, this time to another wealthy Lincolnshire landowner, Edward Clinton. With him, she would have three daughters. While it has been suggested that she became a lady-in-waiting to Anne of Cleves, it appears more likely that it was in fact her mother-in-law that did that, and not her. In 1539, after a few years of dodgy health, Bessie died at the age of 42. While the cause of death is not known, it is quite likely that it was in childbirth. In keeping with the theme of the show, we have no idea where she died, where her funeral was, or where she was buried. And that, really, is the end of her story. So, what to make of Bessie Blount? She has gone down in history as Henry's most important mistress, but that really is purely down to the fact that she was the first woman to bear him a son. Indeed, if it were not for that, we never would have known that they had an affair. The paucity of the number of gifts made to her during their affair compared to Anne Boleyn firmly suggests that she was just one woman amongst many for the king, but all that changed when Henry Fitzroy was born. His birth was a huge moment in the life of the kingdom, and indeed one could argue the history of Europe, as it proved to Henry that he could have a son. It proved, in his eyes, if he could only choose a better candidate to be the mother of his children, then he could produce the heir to the throne that he had always wanted. There are many, many, many other factors that led to Henry's divorce from Catherine of Aragon and the break with Rome, but Fitzroy was a piece of the puzzle. Indeed, if things had turned out differently, Bessie could have ended up being a queen mother, as Henry seems to have viewed Fitzroy as his backup heir. He was treated with far greater distinction, generosity and kindness than Mary or Elizabeth were, and if it were not for his untimely death, and of course the later birth of Prince Edward, the future Edward VI, then we could have had a Henry VIII. Of course, this is all if, buts and maybes, but really, that is the story of Bessie in a nutshell. She was probably Henry VIII's longest-lasting mistress, a great achievement in of itself given Henry's wandering eye, but again, we don't know for sure. We have to reconstruct her life through fragments and make a ton of educated assumptions to piece together a life for her, but I think there is no doubt that she was a fairly remarkable woman. The life that she led was no doubt strongly influenced by men, first by her father, then by Lord Mountjoy and Edward Darrell, who got her into the Queen's household, and then by the King. Yet after that, she became her own woman, who did not last long in the Tudor court unless you had something about you. Henry did not just chase after pretty skirts, especially not in his younger years. He was attracted to beautiful women, yes, but also intelligent and refined women, people who could engage with him intellectually. For Bessie to last so long in his affections, and to have two children with him, shows her calibre. She was one of many mistresses, but perhaps she was the first amongst these equals, and although she survives in the record thanks to a fluke of biology, she deserves to be remembered. 
Thank you so much, James, for putting together such an interesting and thorough episode. I really learned a lot and I enjoyed it and I appreciate it. So for links to James's site and to subscribe to the Queens of England podcast, everything like that, remember to go to englandcast.com and I will hook you up. Next week, we're going to have another guest episode. This one, it's from the guys of the Reconsidered podcast, the gentlemen of the Reconsidered podcast. And it's going to be on Richard III and how he has been portrayed throughout the Tudor period and beyond Shakespeare, fun things like that. Then after that, we're going to have the Tudor Times Person of the Month interview. And then I will be back on my regular schedule in October. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I will speak with you soon. Bye-bye. Oh, mm-hmm.